Hello and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show discussing the wonderful world of landscape photography. This time I'm talking to Colby Brown about his landscape photography journey. Colby Brown is a photographer, photo educator and author based out of eastern Pennsylvania, specialising in landscape, travel workshops and humanitarian photography his photographic portfolio spans the four corners of the globe. Throughout his work, one can see that he combines his love of the natural world with his fascination for the world's diverse cultures. Each of his photographs tells a story of life on this planet. Colby became a photographer back in 2006, rapidly rising in the ranks of the photo industry. Not too long after picking up his first DSLR, Colby was leading photo- photography workshops for National Geographic in South America, further spurring his love for both travel and photo education. In 2011, he founded The Giving Lens, an organisation that blends photo education with support for various NGOs and causes around the world. The Giving Lens helps fight for child education, clean drinking water projects, species preservation, women's rights and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi Colby, welcome to the podcast. How are you going? I'm doing good, Grant. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm very excited to have you on board too. It's uh, great, great to talk to you. I've been watching your stuff for a little while, and uh, it's uh, it's really um, for me, I guess, quite an honour to have uh, someone like you with uh, with your talent on board. Oh, well, like I said, very excited to be here. I'm stoked to see what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Well, let, let's start. So, uh, what what's the Colby Brown story? Well, uh, it depends on how far we want to go back, right? Are we talking about like, you know, origin for photography in general? Well, why not? Um, Do you want to start there? Let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I don't have that like nostalgic photography story that like my father or my grandfather gave me a camera when I was little. And it's just something I've always wanted to do. Like, I know there are photographers out there and that's their stories, but it's, it's not mine. Um, I took a photography class, I think, when I was in seventh grade, but I was much more interested in football and girls at the time to really pay too much attention. Um, And it wasn't until kind of the tail end of my high school career where I started traveling a little bit. And then when I got into university, um, you know, I I got bored after every, you know, one or two years and I go traveling. and, And it was just right at the time when digital photography was was, you know, starting to become more affordable and more accessible where I find myself, you know, taking small cameras out or, or trying to learn more about them, trying to take better, you know, snapshots of my trips or things like yep. that. Yep. And that really kind of got me hooked on the idea or, or the, the, the possibilities, I guess, when it comes to photography. But it wasn't until after I graduated from university um, where I, I was working in a hospital uh-huh. that coincid- coincidentally, well, I, my, my job was a safety administrator. So what I was doing is putting together mitigation plans for things like pandemics, which yep. was, you know, I, I, ironic after this last year and a half, we've all lived through. <laughs> how um, the plan go? <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, to be fair, it, it pretty much went to a T what we expected societies to do. Um, you know, we, we, we planned out for the little hospital I was working in at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I learned really quickly into that job, um, that the whole eight to five, nine to five thing just wasn't working for me. I needed change. I was wearing a suit and tie. I had an office and it just, it wasn't my thing. And so 
I sold everything or most things that I had at the time. I was living in, in Texas uh, here in the U.S. And then I moved up to Canada. I'm actually a dual citizen. So my mother's full Canadian. Okay. And I was in British Columbia, uh, Vancouver area, uh, staying with my older sister at the time. And I just kind of had this epiphany that I, I, I realized how much I love travel with those opportunities I've had when I was in high school and throughout college. And sure. I just wanted to get back on the road. I had no debt uh, or very little debt. I uh, didn't have, I didn't have a family at the time. Uh, I didn't have a wife or kids or anything. Uh, and so I was kind of free to, you know, do whatever I wanted to do. And because I wanted right. to be back on the road, I decided to purchase my own, my first digital camera specifically, just so that I could potentially maybe sell a few pictures or make a little money on the side, just so I can keep traveling for a few years. And that's what I did. I I bought a camera. I studied for a few months around Vancouver, uh, BC in the woods out there. Woke up one morning and I was like, hey, I think I'm ready. Bought a one-way ticket to Bangkok uh, over in Thailand. And then that started a three and a half year journey of living in Southeast Asia building up a portfolio, learning from my mistakes, you know, um, trying all sorts of things of putting myself outside my comfort zone. Uh, and at the tail end of that, I ended up finding myself getting hired by a national geographic, uh, around 2008, 2009. And that kind of really springboarded my career where I was helping them build out some of their expedition programs for their student, um, student expedition, uh, part of their, their enterprise. Uh, where they're taking high school and college kids and taking them to beautiful places and teaching them about photography, but also about science and uh, history so, and all sorts of other fun stuff. And that kind of just launched everything from there. But that was, right. you know, that, that's, that's how I, I dabbled and tiptoed into it. So what, what was that experience like with National Geographic? Did they approach you or were you sort of submitting an application or how, how did that work? It was definitely a submitting an application. So I was, what happened is I was in Nepal at the time. Uh, I was working on a few small projects back in that, those days I was, you know, writing for wherever I could newspapers, yep. uh, magazines. It's kind of at the height of the dot-com boom for travel journalism. And so I was taking pictures and writing and whatnot. And so I was working in Nepal, um, as I mentioned for eh, about three months or so living up in the Sherpa community is working on a few things up in the Himalayas. Yep. When at the tail end of that, I was kind of like ready for a break. I've been traveling for multiple years by this time. I uh, decided to take a trip back here to the U.S. And waiting for me in one of my bunches of mail after being gone for so long uh, was one of National Geographic's expedition programs. And so I started flipping through it and trying to figure out who, you know, who are leading these groups, what are, you know, who are the photographers. Um, and by that time, like I said, I'd been traveling for three or four years permanently, you know, uh, doing it full time. Um, I had a good eye. I, I was, you know, felt I was pretty decent with photography. And so I ended up just finding out who I needed to contact. And I sent in a resume uh, about a month or two later, I ended up getting a, um, an interview I actually did it online, which was very weird for back. That was like, yeah, never wow, happened that, back in that, that time. Yeah. That would have been very strange in those that, days. In the day, the, the, the day of the zoom now, like what we're talking on right now, no, obviously it's every, not a big deal. Everyone's yeah. used to it. It's just the way you work now. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, back then it wasn't the case. And so that was, that was kind of weird, but it, it was, it was nice. Um, I had a follow-up interview a month after that. And then I got a phone call and they said, Hey, we'd like to send you to Belize to help us build out these programs. And I was like, great. That sounds awesome. Belize sounds great. And they called me like two weeks after that. And they're like, Hey, we actually have this opportunity to open up in Ecuador and the Galapagos. And I was like, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I ended up staying in Ecuador and the Galapagos for uh, a little over half a year and essentially wow. built out their, their programs and 
had a bunch of teams come down and kind of let them taught, you know, taught photography, had a bunch of, um, you know, kids and young adults come out through that program. Uh, and it was great. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, and like so I said, you're it, teaching, it, lo- sorry, you're teaching local people, the, uh, you know, photography and, and how to lead expeditions, or are you just, you know, taking tourists around what, what what's the, Sort of yeah, it was, like. it was a little bit more on the tourist side, although, like I said, there's a bit more educational. It wasn't like vocational school where we were teaching people to be leaders and whatnot. It was more so it was it's just like any of Nat, Nat Geo's expeditions. Like they have their oh. they have their their adult expeditions. And they have the student expeditions student expedition, one that I was working yeah. on. And it's the same principle. People are paying a lot of money to go yep. into these places to at for for. For these individuals, these these parents are paying for these kids to come down to learn more. It's like you'd go to Peru and you'd learn about the Mayan culture, but then you'd also you know have some photographers on there to teach people how to take better photos. But you're also going to have like an archaeologist. We yeah. in Ecuador and the Galapagos, we had a biologist with us as well, and so like they're they're learning and studying about those things. It's very educational focus. But then we're also yeah. kind of doing adventure and, and adventure tour, uh, tour, not adventure and wildlife photography. And so we're teaching them that as we go along. So it's right. kind of this well-rounded thing for like a two week trip at a time. We'd run multiple of those after a while. So I was the one that was sent in beforehand to kind of build out the logistics, put yeah. together the plans of like, you know, what do we do? How do we get there? How do we make all this happen? Um, and then once we, once it was ironed out, we started bringing the teams down and, and that was my, my first foray working for, for Nat Geo. Fantastic, fantastic. So you've been uh, shooting, I guess, all over the world. What locations are still on your bucket list? Is there anywhere you haven't been? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's 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 a really interesting question because when I first started out, right, I think like most of us, the bucket list that we have is is generally pretty big. Like you know, when you haven't traveled oh, yeah, a lot, my, my list is long. <laughs> yeah, you want to go to a lot of different places, right? But I find that oftentimes when you're in that space and it's earlier in your career or when you haven't traveled a lot, it's very broad um, objects that are listed on that list, right? It's like, I want to go to China. I want to go visit India. I want to go see something. Um, Whereas now that I've been doing this for, this will be coming up on my 16th year and I've traveled well over a hundred countries is that, you know, my list is exponentially longer even though I've had all these amazing travel experiences because it's exponentially more specific. Right. Yeah, so yeah. instead so of like, I want to go to India. Yeah. I want to go. Yeah, and yeah, see ex- this. I want to go and see this particular tree next to this particular waterfall. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. And like the cultural stuff, I want to go visit, you know, I want to go to Mongolia at this time of the year to see this. I want to, yeah. you know, track, you know, I've been doing a lot more wildlife lately. So it's like, I want to go track this particular you know, endangered species that only is in this part of the world in this small window. And so the list gets longer, but because each of those different experiences is, is um, much more specific. And so it's, it's very interesting. Like for me, I'd say, you know, there's a handful of, of larger countries that I have really wanted to go explore more places like Madagascar that I haven't been, even though I've traveled all over Africa, Um, you know, stuff like that. There are certain there's a lot of places within like Brazil, which I go quite often to go photograph jaguars down in the Panthenol, but uh, that's mostly in the southern part and southwestern corner near the Amazon basin compared yep. to going to the northeast. So there's lots of little nuances like that that I still would love to go have, even including to places in countries that I have extensively traveled, but I just haven't had the opportunity to build in these other experiences or these other opportunities to capture different things. And so, you know, 
I'd say places like, like I said, Madagascar and the lemurs is something that's big for me right now. Yep. Um, going out and exploring more of Greenland. I mean, I've been, obviously I'm, I'm part Canadian. I've explored, you know, a lot of Canada, but there's a lot of places like up near Tombstone or Baffin Island that I haven't been, yeah, um, right. you know, stuff like that. I, I find myself as I've get, been doing this for longer, I too am much more specific in kind of those experiences I want to have. I want to, I want to go see the iconic stuff that I haven't seen because I think there's reason things are iconic, but I also want to travel or I want to go have those experiences or document capture images from places that are exponentially more difficult to get to. Right. I yeah. want to, yeah. I want to go down to Patagonia where a lot of people go, but then I want to do different hikes that other people haven't done because they're quite difficult. Or I want to go up to Alaska and go visit a very remote area in order to go photograph bears that people don't get a chance to go to things like yeah. that. Yep. I think helps keep it interesting from my perspective and, sure. and keeps me going after so many years of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later about how you, how you stay motivated, but um, I guess how far do you travel each year? You know, um, I mean, the last couple on, of years, probably a lot less. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, COVID, it was, <laughs> COVID was interesting. I started off the year like any other year, right? I, I yep, spent, yep. Uh, I spent New Year's Eve, in Uganda, trekking with silverback gorillas uh, with some clients. And then I went from there to the uh, to Norway to photograph the Northern Lights. And then I went to Cuba and I was actually in Cuba when like the world shut down. And that was like the end of it um, yeah. uh, for, for the rest of the year, which was really a blessing in disguise because I got to spend time with my family. And the reason that that's a blessing in disguise is because normally I travel anywhere between five to six months, maybe seven months out of the year, depending on if it's a busy yeah, year wow. and depending on where around the world I'm going to. And so, yeah, it, it can add up quite a bit. So last year was, you know, a lot of people were, you know, struggling. Obviously there was a lot of, of turmoil and there's a lot of hurt. And I absolutely, you know, understand that for me personally, outside of, you know, the financial, um, you know, restraint or, 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 or loss of income yeah. because of lack of travel, it was actually wonderful. I was really fortunate to be able to spend more time with my wife and son than I have since both me and my wife got married and since my son was born. And he just turned 10 literally last weekend. Okay. And so it was, it was great. It, it was great to have that opportunity, even if it was amidst this chaos and all this other stuff that was happening. Yeah. Um, it was a wonderful silver lining, at least for me personally. So how, how far have you traveled? Uh, I guess, what's the furthest you've traveled to, to get a shot? Oh, um, I mean, I guess it, it's hard to, to, to quantify that because, you know, for distance is obviously relative to, to where, everyone, where I'm at right now is probably like almost on the opposite side of the world for you. Like I've been to Australia so many times. Right. Yep, yep. Um, but in terms of like the, the sheer remoteness of stuff, you know, again, a lot of that these days has been coming down to wildlife photography, which has kind of been a passion for the last five years. So oh. You know, I'd say going up to remote parts of Canada to photograph polar bears, um, you know, up in the, the Yukon uh, up there in the Hudson, um, Hudson River or Hudson, um, Lake Hudson, or I'd say going down to Antarctica, South Georgia, Falkland Islands, um, you know, places where you got to, you know, spend two or three days uh, on a boat just to sail to these, these yeah, spots or to get there. to. Stuff like that, I think, are quite interesting. Um, you know, places like Mongolia or Bolivia, again, can be quite challenging. It doesn't take so long to get to these locations because the infrastructure is so bad in these countries that yeah. once you get there, the transit, the, you know, domestic options in order to travel or hike or to, you know, hire a donkey and a guide in order to get to the spot you want to get to ends up elongating that transit, right? So sure. there's lots of variables within that space. But I'd say, you know, 
between the the remote landscape opportunities like that, you know, exploring different parts of the Andes and both Southern and Northern Patagonia to Bolivia to the more of the wildlife stuff, which, like I said, would probably say more of Antarctica, you know, that's, that's been a, uh, was a, a high on my own personal bucket list. And I was able to yeah, yeah. check that off a, a couple of years ago and, and love going back since. And so, uh, how, uh, yeah. How, lot- did you, how did you get down there? Did you uh, go in through South America or through New Zealand or Australia? Cause there's, yeah. there's a couple of other different ways. I mean, if you, with the uh the, the u.s programs you can actually fly in there into mcmurdo for example but uh yeah yeah absolutely for for, for me what i did because i you know again most stuff that i or not enough a decent chunk of what i do is still wrapped around education and and yep. leading trips or workshops or things like that and so i'm always trying to do you know when i'm setting up a new trip or i'm setting up a new experience i'm often will try to plan accordingly for the eventuality of maybe bringing clients down and so for when it came to Antarctica, I flew down into Ushuaia in Argentina and yep. then jumped on a boat from there, took the three-day uh, cruise out to Falklands, spent a couple of days there, uh, a couple of day cruise down to South Georgia, um, uh, spent a few days, you know, five or six days there, and then head down to the Antarctic Peninsula and spent time down there before crossing back over the Drake. Um, it was yeah. my first time when I went down there. That was the, the option. Um, and I liked it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I love Antarctica. It's amazing. I love the pink colonies, but South Georgia to me is just one of the most fascinating places on the planet. I mean, it's just such a unique place that I think yeah. a lot of people don't even know exists. Like I always try to describe it as if, you know, think of if Hawaii or New Zealand, either, or, or both of them, maybe had a baby with the Galapagos, like the, the, the end up result would be the South Georgia Island, right? You have glaciers yep. and mountains and fjords and then penguin colonies with millions of penguins and like fur yeah. seals and like albatross. I don't know. It's just, it's such a unique spot. I, I could spend months down there and probably still just scratch the surface of what I want to experience. Yeah. There's a, there's a place similar to that uh, South of Australia called Macquarie Island. It's kind of, not quite halfway between the bottom of Tasmania and uh, Antarctica. And awesome. it's, it's literally just this little speck on the map uh, was, I think, volcanic in, in origin. Uh, but again, just, you know, absolutely uh, covered with uh, penguins, fur seals and, you know, terns and albatross and all that sort of thing. They, they actually had a, a problem there, though, um, uh, I think it was rats or something that, you know, some ship some years ago had sort of parked there and people had got off and rats had come off the ship and had started to sort of devastate some of the wildlife, but they've actually, uh, been running a program down there to, uh, eradicate them and, uh, bring back, uh, bring back some of the, uh, the, the wildlife that got knocked out of, out of that. But, um, oh, that's, that's, that's yeah, that, that one's definitely on my bucket list because, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this really unique sort of uh, ecosystem that's, you know, not quite Antarctic, not quite, you know, sub-Antarctic. It, you know, gets very cold in winter, obviously, but uh, sure. I mean, actually, I think it's pretty cold because <laughs> <laughs> of where it is. But, you know, it gets knocked around because it's in the roaring 40s as well, you know, so there's a lot, sure. of, a lot of wind and, uh, you know, rain and, you know, some really dramatic scenery there too you know it's it is only tiny but it's it's just really dramatic but uh it's it's hard to get to it's really hard to get to 
Well, there you go. It seems like small conversations like this. We're like, now I have another option on my uh, my bucket list of like things I want <laughs> to go experience. Like to it's, <laughs> it's difficult to get to. Sign me up. Let's do this. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. So what what motivates you to keep going? You know, you you talked about you know motivation. So what what is it that gets you going and and, and gets you up other than conversations like this? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, you know, for me, it, it's a couple fold, right? Um, you know, for, I, I as I've been doing this for sixteen years, um, you know, I own a couple of different photography companies. You know, this the Giving Lens, a few other initiatives. And like, this is like the breadwinner. This is the, the bread and butter for our family, right? So first and foremost, yeah. like I, you know, this is what I do for a living. It's happened to also be something that I love and that I'm passionate about. So I have that yeah. trifecta. Um, but that's the driving force. You know, when I'm looking at pricing out, you know, projects I'm pitching to companies or marketing campaigns, or how do I come up with the numbers I, I come up with when it comes to, you know, workshops or, you know, tutorials I sell or any of that other stuff. I always calculate the time invested into it that takes me away from my family, whether that's feet on the ground or whether that's here in the studio building stuff out. Um, yep. And that helps me justify and keep my head on straight for like what I'm doing. My time is valuable because it's taking away from other things that I want to do, such as spending time with my family. Sure. Um, outside of that, um, you know, from the, the personal side of it, uh, coming back to the creative or the artistic side, um, you know, I, I'm, I am, I'm an individual within the photo industry that requires diversity in passion. Yep. The reason that I, I, I've kind of realized this later on in my life now, I'm, I'm 39 this year, is that early on in my, in my uh, you know, earlier careers when I worked in the hospital and things like that, the reason that I couldn't do the nine to five, that I couldn't you know, work at that hospital as a safety administrator was partially because of for me personally, that monotony of, of consistency, right? Having to do the same things over and over again is something that it, it drains my soul a little bit. And yeah. so for me, early on in my career within photography, I learned that I needed to diversify my interests. And, you know, the advice for most people out there these days and still to this day, and there's there's arguably some truth to it is like specialized, right? So get known to be this guy that, that yeah. you know, or, or girl that, photographs this or that specializes in time-lapse photography or does this because it's easier to get, you know, a name built up for yourself by doing that. And there's, like I said, there's truth to that in just business 101, not just endemic to photography. But for me, that just never worked. I, I couldn't be the guy that like just shot, you know, landscape images of Yosemite National Park as beautiful as Yosemite was. And it was just a few hours from my house growing up in California. Um, I just could never do that. I couldn't just yeah. go to the same place and shoot the same thing. And so for me, what's kind of kept me going over the years and kept me inspired, kept me my creative juices flowing is that constant challenge of like, I started off in photography doing travel photography because that was what I wanted to do. I didn't want to get into photography. I wanted to travel and photography was just a conduit to capture some of that. Yeah. Yep. yeah, exactly. It was a means to an end. Yeah. Um, and then from there, that kind of led into like landscape work, right? I want to be isolated into these remote places and capture the beauty and the solitude and the grandeur of mother nature. And then after a handful of years of doing that, I was, you know, I started feeling disconnected from humanity. That's why I started the Giving Lens, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which talks about, you know, it focuses on the philanthropic and, and helping thy neighbor, um, yeah. that type of, of, of mindset of, of really connecting with other human beings and giving, making tangible differences in their lives. And then over the last few years, as I mentioned, you know, with everything that's happening in terms of, you know, warming of the planet and people can argue semantics of global warming and human interaction, like we are warming. 
and species oh, are, are are leaving, right? So, yeah. um, you know, they're dying and, and we are eradicating um, partially through human existence and partially through this warming, partly through a lot of different things. But we're actually losing a lot more species than I think people realize. And so that yeah. Yeah. that idea to document and conserve nature and, and, and whatnot has really been a, a passion uh, trajectory for me for the last five or six years. So having that that mixture of interest and then going from one genre to another, A, keeps things fresh so that every time I leave the house to work on a project, I'm, work, I'm doing something different. Um, it keeps me on my toes to make sure that I'm learning new techniques. I'm challenging myself with stepping outside my comfort zone so that I can learn more about different types of, of you know, different genres or different, um, you know, uh, uh, different editing techniques, like all different sorts of things that I can learn yeah. as I go, go along. And that kind of helps me going. Um, a really great example of that just really quickly is uh, my first trip outside of, uh, after COVID, you know, 2020 was this past May down to Costa Rica. And I was doing, I was working on a wildlife video project for Sony yeah. and um, being down there, I have, you know, I, I've done wildlife for a number of years, like I mentioned, but I haven't done a lot of work with flash and I haven't done a lot of work with macro, but like Costa Rica is like the place to go to photograph like poison dart frogs and, you know, pit vipers and, you know, hang out in the jungles with creepy crawlers and really, you know, create some amazing yeah. things. And so I forced myself to learn about that stuff and how do I light and how do I do this? And it was so fun being down there in the jungles and like sweat pouring off of my face because it's so humid and you're in a rainforest in the middle of the night chasing down, you know, poisonous snakes. And, and then once you find them, like, how do you safely capture it? How do you do it in a way that doesn't um, you know, uh, offend the creature itself. Like, how do you do all these different things? And that was a new challenge for me. And so like the whole time I'm down there in this like environment that I think a lot of photographers would be like, I would not do that. I, that doesn't sound comfortable at all. I'm getting bit by bugs in the jungle and all this other stuff happening. But I just had this giant smile on my face because it was a challenge and it was fun and walking away with images I'm proud of. And I can take some of that knowledge and apply it to other stuff. Um, and, and further that interest as well, because I love it. Now I want to go back down to Costa Rica and go to remote, more remote parts of Costa Rica and document some more, you know, lesser known amphibians and reptiles in the same manner. So yeah, lots of little yeah. stuff like that helps keeping me, you know, moving forward and helps keeping me challenging myself um, and improving my game at the same time. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, some of these projects take you away from your family. Do you ever bring them along? Yeah? And, and how does that work? Because you're obviously doing this for a living you're doing this for work you know i mean particularly when you're traveling to you know some nice place where there's a nice resort and whatever it must be tempting to sort of not do too much photography and sit by the pool for a while you know? yeah how, how, how do you balance that it's a good question you know i think i mean my son has been on airplanes since you know a few months after he was born but most of that stuff when he was younger was regulated to our family traveling around the U S going to different places. But now yep. that he's older in the last couple of years, he's really kind of expanded his interests. He's expanded his passions. He's becoming his own little person, obviously with yep. his own, um, you know, own ideas of what he wants to do and, and what, you know, what interests him. Uh, and so we've worked that in. And, and so nowadays, um, you know, oftentimes again, outside of COVID it's like, Hey, I'm going to, here. I'm going to the British Virgin Islands, or I'm going yeah. to Iceland, I'm going to Alaska, and I have to work on these projects. Maybe at the tail end of those projects, I'm going to get my wife and son to fly out. And that's what we just did actually in Iceland. Um, I, this is the second time my wife and son has been there, but I was just there, taught was my first workshop teaching since COVID you know, hit. So yeah. I taught a full workshop in Iceland uh, this summer. 
And then I worked on a couple uh, projects for one for Dell and one for Western Digital. And then at the tail end for the last eight days, I ended up spending about a month out there this summer. Uh, wife and son came out. We rented a camper van. We hung out. And I showed them some of my favorite places uh, that they hadn't seen before. And they got a chance to experience that. So like I said, we've done that in a couple of different locations. And we're going to continue to do that um, to both broaden my son's horizon and, and to also, you know, as you said, to get my family to, to be together in some pretty amazing locations around the world and kind of piggyback off the efforts that I'm already doing uh, from a business sense where I'm already in these destinations um, and have them come out and experience them for themselves once I've wrapped up all the actual work work. Um, and then I can just focus on being a dad and a husband and hanging out and having a good time and showing them some places that I love. Nice, nice. So is he showing any interest in photography or is it just, oh, that's just dad's thing. I don't do that. <laughs> he has, that, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my, my girls are all grown up. So they're, they're uh, I think the youngest 23, she turned 23 the other week. You know, so they go through that phase of, yeah, anything parent related is not for me. You know? <laughs> so how, how, where is he on that spectrum at the moment? Well, at ten, we still we're 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 still in the early days, right? Yeah, so, you haven't haven't quite you know, nudged that team rebellious. We haven't right. jumped into that just yet. I know it's coming at some point for sure. <laughs> um, but you know, for 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 Jack, which is his name, uh, oh. nice nice Australian name. Um, you know, he is a he's a unique individual that he doubt. You know, he has interest in photography or video work or different things like that. But his attention span at this time is like, it, it's not enough to really know if there's going to be any trajectory, right? Is there going to be yeah. anything behind that? Uh, but he does have his own camera. When we go traveling, he takes his own own pictures and things like that um, and and takes his own videos and, and enjoys that stuff. But he doesn't really do too much of it after that besides show his friends, which is perfect at this age. Uh, yeah, that's what it should yeah. be. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. Who knows, right? I mean, like we don't try to push him into anything we try to provide oh, yeah, as many opportunities yeah. and then see what he does right and yeah. and so yeah it's uh, it's been interesting seeing him grow but yeah it's pretty adorable especially when it was little you know five years old walking around with his little camera taking pictures yeah, of nature yeah. is is uh just warms my heart for sure <laughs> fantastic fantastic so what uh you, you mentioned the giving lens can you tell us how that got started and what what its aims are what it's all about yeah absolutely so the giving lens is the, you know, the short 45 second elevator pitch is essentially it's an organization that blends the idea of, you know, combining people's love and passion for photography and the arts with support for sustainable development initiatives, charities, organizations that are fighting for various causes around the world. And typically, we are partnering with these organizations that are working in the developing world um, that uh, you know, are, are championing these different causes. As I said, um, we do a lot of work with youth education programs, but we also do stuff with women's vocational schools. We've worked with Syrian refugees in the Middle East. We've worked with um, families from the uh, immigrant migrant chains coming, uh, uh, trains coming out of Central and South America, coming up yep. here to the U.S. border. Um, we've done all sorts of stuff all over the world. And so essentially what we do is we take teams of photographers, people sign up to come on these trips. They a pay fee kind of similar to a, a workshop where we're teaching people how to be better photographers. Yep. But for the flip side is that we're partnering with these organizations and we're, we're figuring out ways in order to tangibly give back to these communities that we're working in. Sometimes that's documenting a project. Sometimes it's bringing donated camera gear and uh, teaching the, these organizations how to better document and advocate for the projects that they're working on so that they can raise money. Um, all sorts of things. Every trip is different and unique. And then at the tail end of it, we make a sizable donation based on those proceeds that have come in 
back to those same people that we were working with on right. the ground so that they help with their own fundraising and they can again expand the projects and the work that they're doing. And so it, it's a multifaceted element that has kind of grown and morphed over the years. But the reason that I started it was because those early years when I started traveling around the world, I was noticing there was a handful of discrepancies when it came to just travel in general, mm-hmm. tourism, and certainly travel photography that never set right for me. Um, one of those was just the dehumanizing nature of travel photography uh, yeah. or tourism really in general. It's like we oftentimes it's these Westerners going to these, these countries, generally poorer countries, uh, at least the ones that I was going to. And we have these cameras and we stick cameras in people's faces and we feel we're entitled to take these shots. We don't ask for permission. Um, it's a very one-sided and, and dehumanizing experience for a lot yeah, of people yeah. around the world. And that never really set right with me. I, I wanted to you know, break down the fabric of why that's happening and how can we correct that. And then on top of that, I also wanted to have a better understanding of where the money that we spend when we travel really goes. Because oftentimes, again, in the developing world, hotel chains or restaurants, yeah, even a lot of these places. nationals rather than to the local people. Exactly. Yeah. Local you know, whether people it's, get, get a few pennies, but everyone else it, is making, making big coin. Yeah. They're making the money. Exactly. You're 100% right. Whether it's Canadian, US, European, Australian, you know, owned, oh, yeah. like yeah. all these different facets, like you never really know. And so we, again, we wanted to break that down. We wanted to, make sure we know where, where that stuff's going. And ultimately, like I said, we wanted to make the experience a more of a two-way street. We wanted to make it a benefit for these you know, individuals in these communities to let us into their world, to show us the realities of what their challenges are that they face, um, to, to you know, pull, you know, pull out the curtain and, and to show us the, the the, the real world, take the filters yeah. off, so to speak, and to have sure. a unique experience in a way that is wrapped around art and photography and, and learning about that, but also helping out these individuals and helping out these communities in a way that isn't the standard humanitarian approach of, you know, Western people coming in and telling people how to solve how their to problems, things, but yeah. more so working together and working yeah. with these organizations and these communities, like, how can we help you? How can we help you raise money? How can we, you know, like, what are your needs and where can we help help you achieve those goals. And it's been very successful in doing that. We've raised lots of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've you know, bring tons of donated camera gear from all over the world to different places where we've helped build photography programs in places like Nicaragua with an organization called Empowerment International that um, essentially uses their photography and their biking program, separate program, to give incentive for kids to stay in school and keep the retention rates high so that the organization is helping keep kids out of um, you know, gangs and, and um, helping them stop, you know, dropping out of school yeah. and the benefit out of them staying in school and having those uh, attendance, uh, you know, positive attendance records and taking advantage of this organization's educational tools to help them through that process that they have the added benefit of learning photography or, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, bike races and mountain bike races and all this other stuff that they wouldn't have the opportunity to have otherwise. And through programs like that, they have had uh, they've been able to keep retention rates in the high 90s uh, with the kids that they work in the barrios outside of Granada, which is just outstanding for anyone that understands youth education programs somewhere in the world. Like that's unheard of. Yeah. And so like little things like that really helps create sustainable relationships with these communities uh, and allows us to, like I said, play a tangible role in making a difference in the lives of what's happening. And we get the benefit of showing that to these clients that we bring down with us to, um, you know, help 
open up and broaden their horizons and see, like I said, a bit more of how the real world works out there. Fantastic. So how do, how do people get involved? Uh, you know, how do, how do people donate? Where, where do they go? What, what do they need to do? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the best place to go is the givinglens.com. Uh, I mean, so much obviously with travel and everything that's been happening, like a lot of our social media and a lot of other things have been kind of put on hold because of COVID, but you know, uh, going into 2020, we are hitting the ground running, hopefully Delta variant, you know, and other things uh, aside. Uh, we'll keep an eye on everything that's going, but that's our, our goal is to continue to uh, to push out for 2020 and have lots of great projects around the world to get back into helping these communities because a lot of people aren't realizing that, yes, it's unfortunate for people here in the US and for you guys in Australia and a lot of other Western places, but a lot of these countries, a lot of these communities, their income went down to zero when tourism that's stopped, it. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so how do we jumpstart that in a safe way for a lot of these countries that can't get the vaccine yet, right? Or they won't be getting them for a while. That's what we're trying to navigate right now. But right now, you know, long-winded answer to your question, go to thegivinglens.com, sign up for our newsletter. There's a little donate button there if you want to give back. Um, We're also going to be working on some new initiatives that are coming out at the tail end of this year, like I said, to get ready for 2022. Um, But yeah, um, anything like that. And you can just search up The Giving Lens or just go to thegivinglens.com or shoot me an email and I'll happily point you in the right direction. Fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, it's, a, it's something that uh, I think a lot of people haven't been talking about very much, as you were saying, that impact of, uh, you know, the lack of travel over the last year and a half or so and uh, yeah. what impact that's had on economies, you know, like Fiji or Vanuatu, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know here in the South Pacific, just to name a few. And I know it's not sure. just there, it's the, there's plenty of other places that, you know, their, uh, their, their economies are just sort of, drop through the floor because uh, the, the, the Western population and <coughs> pardon me, other areas aren't, uh, aren't traveling as much as they did. hundred percent true. I got, I was getting, you know, messages, you know, I do use WhatsApp. I'm sure a lot of people do the travel. Um, you know, all my guides, all the fixers, all the people I work with all over Africa, you know, we're, yeah. we're just reaching out and, and, you know, friends, people that I've known for years and they're just like, we have nothing overnight. Like it's, yeah, it's just dropped and, off a cliff. Yeah. And, and people aren't necessarily, I mean, obviously everyone needs to make choices that are based on, you know, you being safe and whatnot. I hundred percent get that. But the conversation, as you said, is just, hasn't been happening. It's like these, these communities are starving yeah. and they don't have their governments that are helping them out. Right. And That's so right. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting what happens in 2022 to see how that can be rekindled. I'm already working on a handful of projects in places across Africa to hopefully help jumpstart some of that on a small scale. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's very important stuff that I think, like I said, a lot of us in, uh, that, that have the privilege of being in these places that, uh, you know, have, uh, he- you know, helpful safety nets um, that they don't have um, yep. in a lot of places around the world. Yeah. So has the pandemic changed your attitude towards traveling and photography? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think like a lot of events in my life, it helps bring perspective, right? I think it helps. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for me, again, you know, coming back to the silver lining from from last year, spending so much time with the family, it's like realizing how much I missed when I was gone, building up my brands and my companies. Um, there are times that I can't get back, right? Um, yeah. I, I've been fortunate to be very successful or have found quite a bit of success in the photo industry, so I can't complain uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But that really opened my eyes and having that much time to be able to spend at home with no trips for, you know, well over a year. And, you know, to, to enjoy that helped make me, help me prioritize projects I want to work on, 
Um, It helps me think more proactively as we were just talking about the money that I spend and the value that that has to a lot of communities and places, especially that I travel to, because I don't travel around Europe all that much. I don't travel. I do come to Australia, but a lot of the work I do is Africa, South America, Southeast Asia. And, you know, seeing that, how that changed really opened up my eyes to the realities again, um, you know, further evidence of, of these challenges, a lot of these places, you know, folk, you know, deal with that have a, a, you know, gross medic product that, that wraps around tourism. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, it, when and, it's the and, core of your economy, it really makes it makes a difference. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether it's a national disaster or something like a pandemic, like these things yeah. can just have devastating impacts. And so a lot of those things just help make, you know, helps me appreciate the time I have at home, helps me want to spend more time with the family. And like I said, helps me prioritize where I want to go, what projects I want to work on, you know, what stories I think are important. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's how I want to want to prioritize that time and investment uh, moving forward, because after 16 years and having traveled to all seven different continents and Again, having the luxury of, of having successful businesses, I get to pick and choose where I go now. It wasn't like early on my career where you got to say yes to everything and you're doing work you don't want to do. Like I have that luxury now. So I think I need to not take it for granted. I need to make sure that the choices I make are very pointed and very focused and um, intentional. Um, and that's kind of my plan moving forward is to, to learn from this time and to you know, value that time away from my family and also to include them in more stuff. I make sure that I'm helping as many communities as I can out there as I'm working on other projects that are also important to me, whether it's from a you know business or financial standpoint as well. Sure. Are there any particular photographers, I guess, that are out there that you know are really inspiring you at the moment? Yeah, I think I mean, again, the the, the benefit of having this really wide interest, um, you know, interest in, in a variety of genres in photography really kind of keeps me, um, you know, keeps my ear to the ground for a lot of different people that are doing stuff out there. A lot of photographers that are up and comers, a lot of people that have seasoned professionals have been doing this for a long time. You know, people like Paul Nicklin and Christina Mittermeier, fellow Sony ambassadors here uh, with me uh, that do a lot of work with Z Legacy and Nat Geo. I always find their work inspiring. Um, you know, Andrew Studer is a, a young uh, photographer here in the U.S. that uh, constantly amazes me or Michael Shanebloom, um, yeah, handful yeah. of photographers that are doing just they're, they're, they're really stepping up their creative game and pushing boundaries yeah. that I think a lot of people didn't think about what they're doing. Um, and then people like doing stuff that is completely outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, Drew Geraci is another Sony artisan that um, does time lapse work. He did the the intro to House of Cards, if you've ever seen it, does a lot of work with the NFL and things like that. But like his whole world is time lapse and cinematography. And like that's way outside the realm of stuff that I normally do. So I like finding yeah. people like Drew um, or a lot of these other individuals I mentioned and the, plenty of other people out there that are doing things that I may not necessarily want to get into, but I'm inspired by their creativity. Yep. That inspires me to want to, you know, be more creative myself, to try new yeah. things, step outside my comfort zone, to travel to different places or to try new techniques um, and to continue to constantly learn. Like, I think the moment I feel that I don't have anything else to learn, like I need to, I need to sell my cameras and try something new because I think that's the fun part. Like, I love that journey. I love constantly trying to, to better myself. And um, I don't know. I, I, I love that whole aspect of it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. The, uh, the, the amount of inspiration I've got from looking at things that, as you say, aren't in my wheelhouse, you know, I, my my natural home is sort of knee deep in you know water somewhere either 
at a waterfall or taken a sunrise shot with uh, with with some waves and whatever. But uh, the the people that inspire me are the ones that are actually using light really uniquely you know and whether whether it's whether it's landscape whether it's portrait or even you know digital art you know some some of the digital artists that are are doing things now you know whether whether it's moving or a still image is just phenomenal when you when you take a look at how they've actually used light effectively to you know convey either a message or a you know a, a story and for me that's that's really what it's all about. And they're the things that get my creative juices going is, you know, looking at that and going, okay, how, how can I, how can I use some of that? It, you know, it, I, I'm never going to be a portrait photographer, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, how can I use some of that and, you know, take that back into my own work and, uh, and, and really, you know, utilize what I'm learning out of that. It's a great approach for it, man. I mean, that, you know, I, Oftentimes what I do, you know, with um, like things like pro or platforms like Instagram, right, is yep. that I'm constantly looking at, you know, different hashtags and different things to see what I can find outside my sphere of influence, right? Like I've been fortunate, I have 258,000 followers on Instagram, which has been helpful over the years to, with workshops or marketing fans and stuff. But at sure. the end of the day, I use it to socially interact with other people. And so when I can go through and look and find out some amazing stuff that other people are doing, people that are just starting out, people that are just building their careers or trying to build a name for themselves that no one has really heard about. I love finding that stuff too in that same vein. Like it doesn't, for me, it doesn't have to be a professional photographer that has spent the same amount of time as I have or, or their brands on the same stature as mine. Yep. I just love seeing amazing art and how can I learn from that? And oftentimes I will reach out to those people and say, hey, my name's Colby Brown. Um, you know, I love what you're doing. Like, how did you do this? Or, you know, asking questions of, of things that I find um, interesting in the same way that you were just mentioning of like, oh, whether it's lighting or whether it's a certain type of technique or whether it's, you know, compositing images or like whatever it is. Like, I don't know. I, I, I love the fact that art and it's not endemic to photography yeah. spurs this idea of collaborative learning. Like we don't have to, it doesn't always have to be a teacher to a pupil relationship, we can all learn from each other in different Absolutely. ways. Yeah. And I, I, I just love that. It's, it's a fascinating aspect of this art form. Yeah, totally. Totally. When, uh, when, when you talk about that, where do you stand on things like, you know, composites and using digital trickery, if, you know, for, for want of a better term in enhancing a photo, you know, yeah, you might've stood there and you might've taken that photo, but you might be tempted to, I'll put a bit of glow here or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll add a, a, a radial filter here that a radial uh, gradient or reflected gradient or something in there to, you know, jazz it up a bit. And yeah. I mean, people obviously do that. And some of these tricks are darkroom tricks from, you know, way back in the, the old. It's a lot of days, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, I mean, there, there's a famous Australian photographer, Frank Hurley, uh, and he was very, he was um, a photographer that went through World War One as a, a official photographer as part of the Australian Army that uh, went over into, uh, started off, I think, taking photos with the, what was called the AIF, the Australian Infantry Force, mm -hmm. uh, and started off taking photos of them in and around Egypt 
where they were first based before they then went into Gallipoli and then uh, in the on the Western Front. And some of his images are very, very, you know, they're, they're some of those iconic Western Front images of the shattered trees and the mud and, you know, so forth. But he was criticised at the time because he used composites. He, he ah. did that a lot. And he did that to tell the story. Here's, here's uh, you know, a battle scene, for example, with a plane flying overhead that, <coughs> pardon me, wasn't part of the original shot with, of the ground and what was going on there. And that explosion might have come from another shot, you know, for the, that he's comp composited in. And, you know, at the time, he got a lot of criticism for, for doing things like that because people said it's not photography. <laughs> where where do sure. you stand in, in all of that argument? Because, you know, there, there's the purists, you know, on one side and there's the, the digital artists, if you like, on the other side and there's that big gulf in between. Where, where are you, in the, in the gulf or at either end? You know, I, 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 I feel I, I'm very tolerant to, you know, artistic expression. I mean, I, I think just even the fact of, you know, telling that story and the fact that these arguments were being had back in, you know, early in the 20th century yeah. and we're still having them today says a lot about the the challenges of, of just art and understanding the variable or, or the, the fact that we all see it subjectively, right? Um, you know, I personally, with my work that I do, tend to refrain from compositing images. I tend to not replace skies. I've been to dabble to here and there just for interests and whatnot. Um, you got to give it a go to see what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there'll be times where I'm like shooting a scene. Like I don't, I don't like stack tons of images or something like that. But like I'll be shooting like Northern Lights right over a mountain, yeah. and then like 45 minutes later, the Northern Lights are so much better, but the foreground is better than that first shot. And I'm like, yeah. oh well, I'm going to take that sky and come over. I've done yeah, some yeah. of those things, um, but a lot of the big digital artistry stuff, like I, that's not my cup of tea. I'm not the individual that likes to sit here in my studio and spend five hours working on a single image. Like that's not my happy place. I, I enjoy the process, post-processing side, but that's not where I want to be. Um, that's not how I want to want to utilize that stuff. But for people that do, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's, it's, you know, it opens up all sorts of creative doors of what you can do. I think the biggest challenge that it comes down to is just being honest when it's being done and letting yeah. people, yeah. you know, know, because, I think that to me is at least in 2021, right? The year that we are now already, yeah. that the problem is not that there's digital composites or that people are changing skies or using, you know, adjusting their, their aperture or changing the lenses they're using to make a mountain look bigger or any of those other things. It's the fact that people get caught doing it because they weren't mentioning Honestly, it. At, yeah. yeah, exactly. From yeah. the beginning, like this is a composite image that I created and in, in, in to tell this story or whatever the reason is. Um, you know, you can look in the same vein of, of the story you just told about World War One. Look at Steve McCurry, right? And like yeah. all the heat that he's been getting for the last few years, you know, the iconic Afghan girl, like that was his iconic shot. But like a lot of his other stuff that he's developed over the years, you, you see the negatives that have come out and uh, like the actual film negatives that, are, that yeah. have been seen now showing how a lot of those scenes were manipulated, even if sometimes they're small manipulations where people were considering that journalism at the time. And so that is why he's getting flack now. He wouldn't get flack if he mentioned it back then that, hey, some of these images are yeah, altered I've, or edited. I've, I've enhanced some of these things, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Little stuff like that, I think, goes a long way. So I think people should absolutely, you know, enjoy creativity and, and, and create unique things that you think, you, you know, that inspires you or that, 
maybe more resembles what your human eye sees. Like that's another thing. A lot of people don't realize that the human eye is vastly different than oh, yeah. the cameras and sensors and lenses that we use. Maybe they're trying to recreate that. Like whatever the reason is, um, I think it's great that they're doing it. I think the, techno the techniques that they use, I think there's a lot of stuff that they're doing that I'm interested in learning more about, not because I want to replicate, but because I want to maybe see what, you know, how, how do they handle frequency separation or how do they yep. use luminosity mass that I can then maybe apply to what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that when they share those, they should just let people know because I think there's a lot of expectations for images in general. And if, you know, you're not, you know, honest about it and someone catches you being not honest about it, it creates a problem. But yeah, if you never, yeah. if you mention it from the beginning, there's no problem. So who cares? And no, no one should that, care that it's, right. it's composite. Yeah. So that's kind of where I, mean, I lie. Like, just be honest about it. Yeah. There's a, a really good, um, uh, you know, photographer slash composite artist, call, call her what you will, Kath Simard. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever seen some of her. I know Kath. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I know her. Yep. And, you know, absolutely stunning images, but she's very upfront. This is a composite. Super upfront. Well, you know, yep. She, and, you know, I, I really admire that honesty. And, you know, you, you see a lot of people that clearly, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure you added those birds in or whatever it is. <laughs> oh yeah yeah hey, we've been out long enough to know exactly when you're not going to get yeah. that perfect formation or those things hitting the right at the right time the chances yeah. are infinitesimal i've seen so that I... sky somewhere before <laughs> yeah exactly exactly well i mean that and that's interesting right now i mean look what's happening with ai technology and adobe oh, yeah, yeah. you know sense yeah. eight and you know scott you know skyloom uh uh luminar ai with what they're doing yeah. with sky replacements and like they have these these stock sets of skies yeah. that you can use to replace your stuff with. And I think you'll start seeing some of that stuff. Like I said, again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. I think it takes a bit more of the uniqueness out, especially if you're using some of the stock images out of Luminar or some of those things. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because for me, I find, I feel that creatives in general, whether it's photography or not culinary, could be mu you know, musician wise or anything like that, Yep. typically have three different phases of of being creative right uh or getting into the field the first one as we've talked about already we just haven't mentioned it it's called mimicry that's like yeah. where you yeah. see something that you like that's oh, how i got into photography. how to do that so you learn how Ex to do that exactly you want to copy it right you want to sit there yeah. and, and and replicate whatever it is because it inspired you to begin with that's how most of us got into photography and sure. then the second phase is kind of experimentation that's where you're starting to realize that the things that you've been copying while they're nice, you don't necessarily feel like they're yours. So you begin trying new things, whether it's different yeah. genres or techniques, and you're trying to figure out what is your own recipe. And then the third and final stage where most people try to attain to and not too many people get to is like that fulfillment of creative vision. So where you get to the field and you instantly or instinctively have an idea of how you want to photograph something with an yeah. idea of how you're going to process it. And those two things merge together rather than being separate like it is for a lot of the creatives yeah, out there. Yeah. And like going through those different phases where a lot of these people are. And I think right now camera gear is more affordable, uh, processing images is more accessible. And like all these things are coming together where you're getting a lot of people attempting to skip some of those steps to create, you know, great stuff for social media, for things yeah, like Instagram yeah. to be Insta famous, not realizing that that doesn't act, you know, I don't, I don't make a penny because an image gets, you know, 10,000 likes on Instagram. I make it because I have the business contacts and then I can then, understand how to create value out of something like that but not just because i'm creating something and it gets a bunch of interaction on social media where i think a lot of aspiring artists that are into that mindset don't fully understand just yet 
Yeah, and I, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the, it, it's probably one of the worst aspects, I won't, won't say it's the worst, but it's one of the worst aspects of social media. It's not so much the, uh, the, the chasing of the likes per se, but it's that being the end rather yep. than a means to something else, you know? Yep. And so if the end is I'm getting a lot of likes or I'm getting a lot of followers, then it's kind of like, okay, um, where, where's the meaning behind it? And, you know, what is it that you're actually going to get out of it? Sure. Well, I think it's, <laughs> excuse me. I think it's, no, you're good. I think it's also kind of endemic of style issues in general, not to get too existential, but like this idea of chasing external validation to make us feel better about the choices that we make, you know, from a photographer's perspective, I see a lot of that on social media. It's like someone gets bummed because an image didn't get a lot of likes and whether, you know, maybe they're chasing likes, you know, from a conscious level, but subconsciously it's like they're valuing their work based on how other people interact with it which I think is just a, a bit absurd. Like, you know, we, we need to learn to appreciate the journey and the process of what we're trying to achieve and to try to learn how to fulfill that vision. And early in our careers, early in our, our pathways, people don't have to be doing this for, for a living. You know, it takes time and it takes process to fulfill that vision, to understand Absolutely. what I like to yeah. shoot and how I like to shoot it and how I like to use light and mood and atmosphere and all these different things rather than just trying to create these these shortcuts and then push it out there with expecting other people to give us adulation. And then when we don't get it, feel that we're a failure. I think it's just creating, you know, lots of issues, you know, you know mental uh, health issues, you know, to, to put it bluntly, of yep. people constantly looking to other people to say, hey, am I doing this right? Or, hey, is this good? Rather than being like, this is good, I'm proud of it. It could be better, but I'm doing this for me not because some, you know, someone yeah. else wants it. And I think that's a, it's a hard dichotomy, right? And social oh, media absolutely. And I think is it, not made it easy. It, it's interesting. It, it seems to be, you know, and social media is a, a big part of this, I think, but it's that instantaneous gratification that yep. is part of the problem. And if, sure. you know, I don't get that immediate response today or in the next hour, you know, <laughs> and unfortunately the algorithms are driven largely around that first hour. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, you know, and it, it really does, you know, as you say, sometimes, you know, it, even create mental problems for people, you know, and, you know, for me, if you're not doing it for yourself, you know, I, I'd, I'd be very tempted to stop, you know, and the sure. other reason I do, I do what I do is for my own enjoyment, you know, I mean, I, 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 I print a lot of books and I print a lot of stuff that I hang on my own wall. I don't do it to sell it. I don't do it. And I never, never, ever started doing that. Uh, you know, it was literally all about my own, own enjoyment and my family's enjoyment as well. You know? Sure. Well, it's, it's, you know, art in general to me is, is, is meant, and maybe, you know, again, art is subjective, but like for me personally, it's like, it's meant to be this therapeutic experience. It's meant to be a reflection of how I perceive the world or how I experience something. How can I give justification to an experience, a feeling, an emotion, a subject, you know, a story I want to tell. Um, and, and that to me is the driving force and, and the purpose. And so I think, I think sometimes we lose, we lose sight of that. And I think whether it's the instant gratification, as you mentioned, which I a hundred percent agree, or it's just social media in general that is, is, 
always the superficial, you know, coding on the outside of, of what it took to actually get it, whether people are compositing or not, like we just talked about, or like some of my images where you, you know, you don't see the behind the scenes where I was crawling through fields of ticks to photograph puffins in Iceland yep. or, you know, getting malaria in East Africa, you know, trying to, to get to a sp specific spot. And so there's this disconnect from reality to yeah. fantasy. You're always watching um, someone, someone else's highlight reel, not the blooper reel, you know? But exactly. you're living your blooper reel. <laughs> exactly. And so it becomes very easy to judge and, and, and right. to, to yeah. you know, jealousy towards other people, judge yourself. Um, and I think sometimes with people with, you know, that don't have, you know, a certain level of confidence um, in their own individual self, let alone in their artistic, you know, ability just yet. I think it just, it, it breeds the potential for a lot of those more nefarious, um, you know, emotions and, and whatnot. And, you know, I, I always try to, recommend people to, to, you know, learn to compartmentalize early. Like I personally, and this is, you know, maybe I'm partly robotic or whatnot, but I've already, I, I've always understood this from the beginning is like, I've always been able to kind of separate my personal connection towards my own images with them going out into the world, whether people, you know, appreciate them or not, whether I sell, you know, when I sell them to clients or whatnot, like you guys can't see around here too much, but here in my office, outside of a few desktop screensavers here, I don't have any artwork in my, in my office. There none of my own images are in here. Um, you know, I, I love photographing and, and taking these experiences to capture those moments and share them with others, but I don't necessarily have that additional personal attachment that I think some people mm. can, you know, causes them to lead to a lot of these conversations. We were, you know, these topics we were just talking about. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's very interesting conversation that I think needs to happen more, especially for emerging photographers. So they hopefully realize what they're doing and can free themselves from those confines of needing that external validation uh, or instant gratification in order to feel worth. Because, you know, art in general is meant to be experienced and it's yep. part of a journey and a process that we all go through. Absolutely. And whether it's you or myself, like I took tons of crap images when I first started out, I still take bad images when things don't work out for my creative vision. Like we all are on this journey and we should all appreciate the journey rather than, yeah. um, you know, look for shortcuts all the time. I've, I've got old school photo albums of really bad images. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, man, me too. <laughs> uh, so I guess when, when you're, uh, in location, what are you what are you looking for, and how do you how do you nail that unique perspective? You know, because everyone's trying to get their own take, even if they're at you know uh, one of the iconic locations. You know, I'm I'm quite sure you've probably if, if you've been to Sydney, you've taken the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge and whatever. You know, but what yeah, are, what are you course. looking for to try and nail that that unique perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, for, for me, oftentimes when I'm going to a new location, I'm going to do my due diligence and my research, right? Like I'm going to look to see, you know, what has been taken before, what are some of the iconic stuff, you know, do my research on, you know, weather, time of year, all sorts of other different variables. And the reason I do that is so that I can kind of come to a location with an idea of what others have tried, and then I can adjust in real time based on where the lighting is best, what, yep. you know, what leading lines are working for me, you know, what different variables are there that you can't account for. And that helps me kind of figure out the right pathway to start. Um, I have this kind of like five-step program, this five-step uh, process workflow that I teach in my workshops. And, and it's something that I, pr I, I do myself more subconsciously now because I've taken way too many images over the years. Um, but it really helps me work through the scene 
Um, and really quickly, it's, you know, step number one is like identify your subject, right? So like, what is your subject? What is, what is the reason that I'm wanting to take this image to begin with? And I think a lot of photographers don't really define that out. It's like, it's a pretty sunset over the, you know, Sydney Harbor Bridge. Like, that's not enough. Like, is it the light reflecting off of the water? Is it, you know, the, the texture happening off of, you know, a rock face? Like, what is it actually that is causing your eye to want to capture this to begin with? And then that origin point, that initial concept should dictate all the other choices you make out there in the field. And so from that initial point, I then go to, okay, well, what's a composition that emphasizes this choice of subject? Um, is it, you know, is my subject, again, these ripples in the water, the water flowing over this waterfall, the green lush, you know, you know, canopy around it, that helps me determine what is the composition? Is it going to be vertical, horizontal? What do I include? What do I remove? that helps emphasize that initial choice of who's that hero of that story I'm trying to tell. And then from there I go into exposure. So what is my app, app uh, exposure? What is the atmosphere and lighting I'm going for? I typically shoot in manual mode. Um, uh, so I can control all the different facets of, of light capturing the right spectrums I'm going for. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, this is my subject. This is the composition I think is most unique. Now, how, do I capture the light here to emphasize that choice of composition, to emphasize that choice of subject that works in a way that, you know, is depth of field my priority or is motion? Am I capturing slow moving water, fast moving water, subjects in motion? Do I need depth of field? Do I not? And like that little choice helps me, you know, is dictated from those initial choices as well. And then the, 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 the fourth step is to essentially remove distracting elements and fifth step is to take the shot. And so that's kind of the step-by-step -step process that I go through in my head when I'm working a scene where I'm seeing something, I'm like, okay, I instinctively know after doing this for six, you know, 16 years almost now that I'm going to start off with this lens. I have, you know, three or four different compositional ideas in my head because this is the thing that's causing me to go to this, this, this spot. And then I organically work the scene through that work through a process of trying to play an experiment with exposure and light and tension and, and, you know, atmosphere and mood kind of bring all those different pieces together and try sure. to keep it as organic and focused on that subject as possible. Because, you know, coming back to Instagram, I, I've, I've gone through and looked at people's portfolios uh, or on their website, wherever it is. And like, uh, I see it more so on Instagram these days, but it's like every single image is like the same color tonality because they're doing it, you know, for the gram, right? Yeah. yeah um, they're, they're, going for the grid look rather than each exactly face. They, yeah. they need to have them be connected and that just doesn't work for me because i'm yeah, i'm trying I'm to capture same. images focused on the subject and so it you know that begin you know if you look through my stream like a it's a variety of different genres but also i'm playing with exposure and contrast and lighting and and saturation and hues differently depending on that subject yeah and so that's the the driving force behind you know figuring out what is the best way to capture this unique moment or experience or feeling based on those choices and that lineage, um, that, that, that workflow process that helps me work, uh, work a scene. And like I said, it doesn't always work out, but it starts me on the right path. And sometimes I nailed on the first, you know, a couple of shots. Sometimes I'm trying those first few images in that workflow process. And I realize, you know, quickly into it that this isn't working, but now all of a sudden it opened up this other opportunity, this other, you know, change of perspective, do I need to send a drone up and, and, you know, get really high and look down? Do I need to, you know, get really low? Do I need to change lenses? But it, it started the organic um, process to, to, to work the scene uh, sure. more natively when I'm actually there in the field. So. So do you have a favorite spot out of all the places you've been? That's tough. 
Um, <laughs> that's why I'm asking that question. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one too. I mean, for me, you know, again, uh, shooting a wide variety of genres, that the answer to that question really varies depending on where my mental state is at the time. Like, where's that interest, oh. right? When I plan trips in a normal year, um, I'm usually planning out anywhere between six months to two years in advance. And I'm usually predicating those based on where I'm, you know, feeling, you know, emotionally at the time in terms of like, am I disconnected from humanity? Do I need to work in more humanitarian projects? Do I, um, you know, do I want to feel more connected and I feel there, you know, more effort needs to be applied to, you know, wildlife and conservation. Do I want to be more away from society and go spend time in a remote part of the world? Um, yep. All those kind of dictate where those, you know, how I, I create my schedule based on that. And so, you know, long winded answer to your, to your question, like when I get asked that question, it's like, you know, where's my head at right now? Like for me, uh, you know, if, if I was, you know, in the wildlife, you know, headspace, I would probably say like maybe, you know, East Africa, Uganda, yep. silverback gorillas, maybe Brazil and the Panthenol, uh, maybe India and tigers, which is something I haven't done yet, but it's been uh, on my list. Uh, whether it's, you know, more remote and, you know, landscape and mother nature focused, I'd say it's hard for me to beat, you know, places in uh, Patagonia, um, hopefully next month, uh, assuming travel allows for it, I will be taking a group of photographers to Italy and the Dolmites um, to, to go photograph there out in a remote, you know, place away from cities and whatnot to be safe. But, uh, you know, the wonderful part of the Alps, like I love mountains. Those are kind of my happy place for solitude. Um, or if I'm feeling more connected, you know, I wanted to be connected to humanity. I love visiting places like India or Papua New Guinea, you know, close yep. to Australia that are just fascinating, diverse cultures and, and ideologies and beliefs and languages and all sorts of fun stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a kind of all across the board, depending on, uh, where my, where my head is at the moment. Cool. So there, we've talked a little bit about highlight reels. What about some of the low light reels or the, the, the bloopers? Do you have any horror stories from your career? Oh, Goodness. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I look back and there's certainly a number of times, especially from like the business side of things where I made, you know, grave mistakes early on in my career, said things yep. I shouldn't have said to clients, stuff like that, that uh, I don't necessarily love rehashing. I like to think about myself. So I'd never repeat those mistakes, but just, you know, I, I learned it's interesting because, you know, 16 years ago in 2000 or 15 years ago, 2006 is when I started Five, 2006 is when I started my first photography company and there was no, you know, there was internet, but there was no social media. Facebook yep. had just launched for colleges and universities, but it wasn't like, we don't have the photography community we have now. So I learned a lot of the lessons, not by asking other professional photographers that I were aspiring to become because I didn't know anyone. So yeah. I just went through the process of yeah, making and, those and mistakes myself. Connecting was, was almost impossible unless you, you bumped into them on a shoot. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, making mistakes and, you know, burning bridges accidentally and learning from those mistakes. I mean, I did a lot of that different stuff, um, yeah. but more so from the photography and creative side. Yeah. I mean, I've had plenty of times where I've had trips that just, you know, uh, you know, completely failed in, in terms of my expectations of what I was wanting to get out of it, or I made large, you know, monetary um, investments to come away with images that never aspired. I remember the first time I went to Canada and to photograph polar bears at the um, uh, Lake Hudson um, up there in Manitoba or North of Pan Manitoba in Canada and like spend all this money and you get out there and uh, you know, we've had years of, of 
the you know glaciers uh, receding and, and you have winter taking longer and longer and this is one of the rare years in between a cycle which happens every four or five years where all of a sudden the um uh, the the ice drastically increases a year because you get early freezes and so i spent all this money to get up to this part to photograph polar bears the first time i go up there and then you get up there and there's no polar bears because the ice is already frozen yeah. so they're out you know hunting for harp seals which is great for the polar bears really bad for photography of polar bears because there's none around and so yeah i got plenty of stories yeah. about all that the, all the actions underwater if if anyway yeah. exactly and, and and way out on the ice right yeah. and it just yeah. didn't you know you got to make do with the the best of what it, you know what comes out of you know a trip like that which is you know very little content but you know amazing experiences to be in a remote, remote part of the world but you just gotta you know you you can't control weather you can't control especially yeah. wildlife um, and so, yeah, you just got to roll with the punches, but, uh, Absolutely. yeah, I mean, but I think of but, other fun ones. I remember one time in Himalayas, uh, the first time I went out to the Himalayas and Mount Everest, I was hiking along a lot of the passes between the different valleys out there. And I got lost on a trail. I was very naive and young and, you know, didn't feel I needed a guide, um, and got lost on the Kumbu glacier crossing over to Laboche from, uh, uh, a place called Chukung, Chukung Ri, which is another peak you can climb. And just like hiking for like 18 hours, not realizing where I'm at or like how dangerous it was, you know, hiking yep. by moonlight because I lost the goat trail crossing over a high pass, like things like that, like are great to laugh about now. But like now that I have a, a wife and a son and yep. like whatnot, yeah, like oh I try to God, avoid I, making, I could, have died. Yeah. <laughs> I could have totally died. And I, I try not to make those stupid mistakes yeah. anymore, at least minimize the amount of times I find myself in situations like that, where I was a little more cavalier when I was younger. Yeah. If you if you weren't a photographer, what would you be? Ooh, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I would probably end up doing something in environmental science, conservation efforts. Sure. I I just have a love of of nature and being out there, you know, in the you know out there in the world and and in solitude. I don't know. You know, I I could you know maybe I could be like a. Uh, um, you know, a, a, a ranger that, you know, works in one of those fire towers out in the middle of nowhere, assuming I didn't have a family either, you know, like if I was a complete nomad, like that would be like a happy place. I'd be like surrounded by nature, disconnected from everything. Um, but if that wasn't the case and I had my wife and son, which I absolutely adore, uh, then yeah, I'd probably say something in terms of environmental science um, or, or something along the ways of, of awesome. trying to find ways to, you know, uh, claw humanity out of the mess that we're creating in the world these days. Yeah, okay. Um, are there any photographers that you think I should be talking to on the podcast? Anyone, anyone that's sort of uh, interesting to talk to or uh, you think's got some unique perspectives that we, uh, we should be exploring? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any of the names that I mentioned before, I think are highly worthwhile. Uh, Drew Geraci, uh Christina Minemeyer, Paul Nicklin, uh, Michael Shanebloom, Andrew Studer, um, I'm trying to think of some other ones that I, um, I know offhand. I mean, there's plenty of great ones out there that are doing exceptional work. Uh, Peter Coxon, um, Sean Bagshaw on the Pacific Northwest for landscape work. Um, uh, yeah, I, th I think that's a pretty healthy mix of, of, uh, you know, people that I think could contribute to kind of, you know, interesting topics that are happening around the world these days. Kath. 
Kath Smith guard. You should have yep. her on. I don't know if she's, I don't know if she's been on with you yet, but. Uh, no, not yet. I've, uh, I've reached out to her, but uh, haven't got a response from her. So if, if, if you're talking to her, give her a nudge. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. No, for hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. She'd be a great person to talk to, especially with everything happening right now. Like I think really interesting topics that are happening in these days with stuff that she's doing is also like NFTs and cryptocurrency and yeah, things like yeah. that are very fascinating topics of oh, stuff that's absolutely. happening like at the forefront right now of, of yeah. innovation. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's a fascinating experience with what's going on there with uh, you know, all these discussions on Clubhouse and Discord and in Twitter spaces now. Uh, it's it's just a, a, a real buzz to have a look at it. I, d I don't think photography as a genre has ever had an experience like it in its history, you know, where you've got just so many creative people getting their heads together and talking about what they're doing and how they're doing it and you know and there's a lot of people you know presumably making a lot of money out of it but uh sure. yeah, yeah i'm 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 looking at it kind of <laughs> dabbling but i haven't haven't dived head first yet but uh yeah it's it's an interesting experience the other i, I guess then there's the other side of that which is the, the the darker side of nfts and cryptocurrencies and so forth which is the the environmental impact which sure. you know, carbon I, footprint I think, and yep, yep and it puts a lot of people off and yeah but I, I think one of the one of the challenges for the industry is going to be how that gets dealt with sure. uh, because if it doesn't get dealt with then you know i think you've got a lot of people that are you know on, on one side saying that they're very environmentally conscious doing something that's, you know, got a, a, a fairly adverse impact on the environment kind of going, sure. okay, well, how do you weigh that up? You know? Absolutely. <laughs> no, hundred percent. I mean, it's interesting, interesting subjects of, it, it, it's an interesting topic that really, like I said, is at the forefront of innovation right now. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out of it, you know, out of the whole cryptocurrency, you know, space in general, you have other, you know, different, um, you know, uh, blockchain based initiatives, uh, yep. you know, Cardano, ADA and stuff like that, that are being much more, um, uh, you know, environmentally friendly that has a much lower footprint. Like how, how are those going to adapt into the NFT space? Like, what is that going to look like? And we're, we're, a lot of these questions we don't have answers to just yet, but I think people no. like Kath and a lot of the other people that are running those clubhouse, you know, conversations, uh, we should, you know, we should openly talk about that and discuss oh, those ramifications. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, I think it's very disingenuous not to be talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. even I, I was in a, in a space where uh, I think Michael Shanebloom was in there as well. And there were uh, quite a few other, you know, bigger names in, in that space. And, one of the topics that came up was taxation. And I think the lack of understanding about that within the community in particular, because the tax offices around the world, you know, the IRS in the US and the ATO over here, and I know in New Zealand, they're doing it in Europe and the UK, you know, they're all wow. onto it and they're saying, well, that's, that's income. Oh yeah. <laughs> And oh, yeah. if, we want it, our percent. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's two things that are absolutely certain in life and that's death and taxes. Death and taxes. hundred percent agree for sure. I, I agree. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that you're hundred percent right. Yeah. And it was interesting because I, I, I did a quick Google search and found uh, 
you know, both the IRS, because it was mostly American uh, in, in the space, I found an, an IRS uh, commentary on it and also a Time article about how it gets handled, which is more the layman's term because the, sure. the IRS one was typical legalese, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, it's lawyer speak for sure. That's, that's right. <laughs> not, not something that artists are going to sit there and pour over and read and understand, you know. <laughs> Definitely not. They're going to hand Definitely it off not. to their lawyer and say, interpret <laughs> that for me. <laughs> Exactly. But the interpretation is going to be, well, you owe some money to Uncle yep. Sam if, in the US or, uh, you know, the, the treasurer here. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating space to, to look into. And I, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the important things is that the creative people that are in that community, I think, uh, are probably in the box seat to try and solve some of those problems as well. You know, not necessarily sure. all of the technical issues around uh, how the how, how the cryptocurrencies themselves actually, you know, burn fossil fuels, but certainly looking for creative and clever ways of, uh, you know, countering the, the, the environmental impact and uh, other impacts that it may, may have. Definitely agree, 100%. No, it's, uh, yeah. Good conversations to have for sure. I'm 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 excited to see exactly where it goes. I like you have you know dabbled, but uh, you know not done a ton just yet. And yep. uh, yeah, I'm 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 interested to see, like I said, where that conversation goes because I think it's going to be fascinating. And I think you're right. There's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of negatives. And at the end of the day, you know things are going to happen regardless. So I think we have to figure out what that middle ground looks like. And hopefully, Absolutely. advances in technology and cryptocurrency, you know, uh, initiatives uh, mixed in with, you know, artists pushing things, especially in the NFT space, um, digital artists all over the world, I think uh, all need to, to, to help come together and collaborate. Just as you're saying, we're, you know, we have this collaborative effort. We have an opportunity. Um, hopefully we can start that process uh, and, and it goes into a positive space. Totally, totally. Well, I got one more question, and for me, it's definitely the most important one. Uh, mm. Do you like pineapple on pizza? I I actually do like pineapple on pizza. It's not my favorite, but I do like I like pineapple in general. Um, I think it's one of those things where if if I walked into a room and I was hungry and there was pineapple on pizza, I'd eat it and not complain about it because I think yeah. it's good. But you if I'm going it. to a pizza place, I probably wouldn't order it. I'm a little bit more, I, 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 you know, I'm the guy that typically gets like the meat lover's pizza, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. my happy place. Like give me some sauteed mushrooms and onions mixed in with some, you know, bacon and ham and sausage. I'm a happy guy. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't complain about it if it was the only pizza in the room. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Colby. This has been an absolute joy to, to talk to you today. Um, you know, where can people find your work? Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for having me again. I really appreciate conversations like this and you were a, a, a constant host. So I appreciate that. Um, for, for me, any of you guys that are listening, you can go to colbybrownphotography.com, which is, you know, obviously my, my space in the uh, internet world, uh, tons of information, education, stuff there on workshops. Uh, and of course, anything in social media, Instagram, uh, colbybrownphotography.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You just Google and you, you'll be able to find you, you. You probably can't not find me, which is more of a problematic <laughs> than uh, anything else. But uh, yeah, love to hear from you guys. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Colby. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined with some great, great guests in upcoming episodes. 
You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne and hope to see you out shooting soon. <laughs>